Hi again, everyone. Welcome back to another very special episode of Dead Men Talk. And just like, yeah, I'm keeping it quite seasonal with this one. So my last one was was definitely Halloween themed. What happens, especially in our house, when Halloween is finished, we turn our attention to Christmas. So um, I, 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 not quite a loose connection, quite a good connection to today's guest, really. I welcome uh, a fellow author, um, much more beyond that, but that's that's what's drawn me to him is his fantastic books. The author of the fantastic "Do They Know It's Christmas Yet?" trilogy, James Crooks. Welcome to the show, mate. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me on. No, absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. And you were one of those. This this series is this particular series of of, of this show is is I've I'm developing a bit of a theme where it's guests whose work is one of those wonderful things where I'm scrolling through my newsfeed. And, you know, random things pop on and, and something catches my eye, you know, a post, something, a band, a writer, someone lands across my newsfeed and I think I've got to stop and take note of what this person does and I need to go and explore for myself. That's exactly what happened with you. Good. With your Great. Um, so it's fantastic to have you on to talk about it and we'll, we'll delve into not only the book, Do They Know It's Christmas? Yeah, it's a trilogy as well. So we've got that to talk about, you know, more more besides that and um, it is so far yeah it's so far okay that gives us a little bit of a hint probably of where we're going afterwards then maybe <laughs> but um um just i guess the perfect place to start without launching into song um best best place to start is at the beginning so just give us a, a bit more idea about your your background because i can see you've got you've done more than just the, the book writing you know you've done writing for tv and radio as well so um yeah just give us a bit of an idea of your background leading up to this book well, I think I've always wanted to write for for TV and stuff like that, and I've had moderate success. But uh, I'm based in the north of England. I'm based in Sheffield, mm-hmm. and um, it, uh, many years ago, God, twenty years ago, uh, I won one of the BBC Talent things. Do you remember those where people would enter competitions to be a scriptwriter or a comedy yeah, writer or a yeah, producer? Yeah. And I was one of the winners of the first round of that. And I, I was fortunate enough to go down to TV Centre, which was a dream for me because cool. I was working, I'm trying to think where I was working. I think I was working as a recruitment consultant at the time. Right. Um, but I had this hobby and I really wanted to try and write for telly. And it's really hard to get in, but I, I, I won that and managed to, with a handful of other people. Uh, they had a number of um, script commissions that they handed out to people. And I was able to meet with some incredible people like John Sullivan and Graham Linehan uh, and Ben Alton. And um, uh, I'm trying to think of of who, who else was there on those two days. A, a lot of people, heavily influential people, but they were sort of giving speeches to a very small room full of people. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, we were all given a, a half hour commission, not necessarily to be broadcast. I don't think any of them were broadcast at the end right. of it. Uh, and I was assigned a mentor, a chap called Gareth Edwards, a lovely guy who was producing some uh, uh, a brand new sketch show at the time. So I was able to contribute to that and get some stuff on the telly in no time. And I thought, this is it. This is my <laughs> life now. Wow. This is how it works. Um didn't necessarily work like that, but I was lucky enough to meet Jeffrey Perkins, who was the head of BBC Comedy at the time. Mm-hmm. And he very soon after left to go to um, Tiger Aspect. Now, in his in his repertoire up until then, had been loads of Harry Enfield stuff, but he'd also done Father Ted. Oh, uh, okay. yeah, and yeah. I, I wrote a piece then that they uh, he commissioned for Tiger Aspect with a colleague of mine, mm-hmm. um, uh, sitcom, which was a joyful thing to work on with him and a brilliant producer called Lucy Armitage, who went on to do many other things, including, I think, Benidorm. Um, And there's a lot of meetings, but I realized that it was all about 
um, working at their pace, not mine. Oh, I was yeah. desperate to say, come on, then let's get this written. Let's get it yeah, made. Yeah. And they would say, well, this draft's good. Let's re- let's meet again. And I was like, when? When, when are we going to meet again? Because <laughs> I was in sort of Soho Square in London thinking, this is it. This is my time. Yeah. And they were saying, well, you know, when we're ready. They weren't rude well, or anything. No rushes there on there. There was no rush at all. And um, then at the time, I remember them saying, we've got a new talent she's called Catherine Tate. She's brilliant. And uh, at the time, I was bloody Catherine Tate because my meetings were getting cancelled, moved around. <laughs> uh, but rightly so, because she did a brilliant set of shows. Yeah. And then it just fell by the wayside because I realised then that everything they commissioned doesn't get made mm-hmm. for many reasons. Um, and then very sadly, a few years later, we lost Jeffrey and... Um, Things move on, but unfortunately, they tended to move on without me. So I just carried on doing bits and bobs. I managed to get some um, pieces on CBBC and CBBS, um, and went back to writing speculative scripts. Um, got a few made, but in the meantime, I moved into radio and I produced a breakfast show uh, in South Yorkshire and have continued trying to pitch ideas, which is a long-winded way of saying how I got into this because I came up with the idea for this book as a screenplay. I pitched oh, okay. It- Pitched it to a few people as a screenplay, and they all said, great, great idea. Who, who are you? What else have you worked on? <laughs> and I was back to square one again. So I thought on this occasion, if I'm allowed to say, sod it, um, I'm just going to prove it's got legs. So I independently uh, published the book. Um, and here we are talking about yeah. it now. I'm delighted to say I've, I've moved about six, between sixty and 70,000 copies of it. Um, which made me do the sequel. And right now, the third one is out uh, this month. Brilliant. Oh, well, um, let's, let's, let's sort of break them down because I've, I've, the one thing that drew me to this, first of all, not, we are not going to judge books by covers. Hmm. Well, we all say that, but we all do, don't we? And I think that's the one thing that obviously hit me, the, the nature of which I found your work, literally a post flies up with the book cover on for this one. But just it had me straight away. It it just has in there eighties eighties nostalgia. I was born in nineteen eighty four, right? So this immediately had a big draw to me because you know part of it is a good part of it is set in that year. Yeah, um, it's set at Christmas. I love Christmas. So Christmas nostalgia, uh, time travel. You know what else? <laughs> what else would you want in a book? Um, I've heard some great comparisons uh, of people that have explained what, you know, what they would compare this to and what it's made up of, you know, but what, what was the inspiration, the main inspiration behind this one in particular then? What made you want to do a story, um, a time travel story where they go back and try to save Band-Aid? <laughs> Live Aid. Well, uh, it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? It, yeah. it, it didn't really start as it ended up. Right. I, I was, um, a teenager the year you were born um so i was that age where pop music meant everything to me and all my friends it defined you yeah. uh, and it was a time when you were either a jirani or a spandau or a whamette or a wham mm-hmm. fan or whatever um and uh, it was that age where you know sort of uh it, it, it totally and utterly defined who you were and you you weren't allowed to light another band. I mean, you might enjoy them, but you'd you'd, you'd argue with 
your mates in the classroom as to who was good and who was terrible. Mm. And and that that overspilled into the music press. And I think I bought into it because I was that age, 14 years old, loving life, mm. carefree, not yet done my exams, just a, a year or two off them. And all this fabulous music was coming out, but also I was reading smash hits every, every two weeks that it oh, came yeah. out. Yeah. Another magazine called Number One Magazine. And every week it was always, or every fortnight, it was one band or other, Boy George slagging off George Michael or Simon Le Bon slagging off Paul Weller. Um, and it was always sort of handbags at dawn sort of thing. And you could tell it was slightly tongue in cheek, but it, it felt serious. You know, if, if your band was number one, you were sort of, top dog at school <laughs> it yeah, was like yeah, yeah told you this was brilliant this yeah. is number one and your band isn't <laughs> um and then we heard that there was going to we'd seen these reports about ethiopia and we'd heard there was going to be a, a charity record mm. uh, that bob gelder was putting together and we just did not believe for a moment that all our heroes would possibly be in the same room together let alone put their arms around one another and sing a song together yeah. um and so when it happened we were sort of slightly amazed and then when we heard it I, i'm not doing a discredit to it because it's it's still around and we play it every year but when we first heard it uh, as teenagers we all went this is rubbish it's, it was nothing <laughs> like any of the other songs it was just Meh, but we'll buy it anyway because you yeah. know George is on it or Banana Armour's yeah, on it or yeah. whatever. Um, and it it became something that actually changed pop music because they, the bands then were suddenly all mates. The, the whole sort of culture changed in the press and we moved on from slagging off one another to, you know, the common cause, which was a human plight of a country going through a famine and, and everything else just seemed insignificant. But it, it totally changed everything. And the fact that we're still listening to it all these years on, yeah. Um, I mean, my kids, I had to explain to them, do you, do you ever wonder why we sing Feed the World? And they were like, oh, no, I didn't really understand the lyric. Yeah. Um, and I thought, what if Bob Geldof hadn't seen that news report? Because, uh, you know, he did sit down with with Paulie Yates, his, his wife at the time, yeah. or girlfriend at the time, and watch this iconic news report by um, Michael Burke on BBC One News. Yeah. And um, they led with this horrific biblical famine, as he called it. Yeah. Uh, it, it sort of... Um, it, it it caused Bob to, you know, well up and cry and think, what can I do about it? But I've subsequently read his book, his, his book that he published a couple of years later, saying that Boomtown Rats, his band, uh, were just washed up. No one wanted to play them. The, the record label were just almost seeing out a contract and he couldn't get a hit because uh, he thought he'd be right song for it. But he wasn't famous enough. So he spoke with Paula and she was presenting a Channel 4 show called The Tube at the time. Yeah. And she was uh, in touch with a lot of people. I mean, he was still mates with a lot of people. Um, and him and Midge, you're from Ultravox, got together, wrote a little backing song and then basically um, either applied a little bit of gentle pressure or bullied people to perform on this song. So my my thought was, what if he hadn't seen it? What if he hadn't seen it? And I thought it'd be hilarious if uh, if there was some sort of comedy about Howard Jones coming up with the idea and knocking on Nick Kershaw's door and trying to get a tune together. And then, you know, they wouldn't have had the backbone or the spine or Aye. just the um, the serendipity of everything. All those things aligning at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I was unable to write a comedy about that because I didn't know the personalities of the pop stars. And I also thought, the majority of these people are still alive. And I know that for legal reasons or litigious reasons, I'd, reasons, I'd hate to write a book that I was proud of and then find one of them said, stop selling that. I never said that at the time. Yeah, so, yeah. Someone with no sense of humor. Yeah. So I decided instead um, that I would just plant 
two, a brother and sister, adult brother and sister from 2020, which is when I wrote it, yeah. in 1984, let them create the problem in that they magically incapacitate Bob Geldof and prevent him seeing that news story. Then they find out what they've done um, and they have to come home again. But I thought the whole thing needed to be very real yeah. Um, and authentic. So the dialogue's very contemporary, the, the humor's very now, um, but also there's the contrast of let their life and what they were going through then at the beginning of a pandemic and how just small and, 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 and really insignificant life seemed by comparison mm. in 1984. But they bump into a family who kind of become a foster family for them. Um, but I just wanted to plant them there to create this, this dilemma. But their main reason for for existing is to get back they've gone there by mistake they're not time travelers it's a yeah. complete mistake uh, and all they want to do is come home but they've realized they've created this problem yeah. so that's the basis of the story is do they come home because uh, she's left her baby her newborn baby in 2020 or do they stay there because they realize they've seriously messed up history i think there's so much that is great about this premise as well um, I mean, growing up in a, in a generation with Back to the Future, you know, I think we've all, since seeing that film, we've all had those those kind of thoughts. It's like, well, what if this moment didn't happen? What if I went back and, and I changed this? You know, and I think at the end of it, we all think it's a bad idea to do it anyway. <laughs> yes, it's and, terrifying. But I think that, so I'm not usually drawn to comedy in sense of, you know, comedy TV programs I was brought up with, I can very easily watch it. I found it very difficult to get into comedy books. Yeah. It was just one of the few that I, I picked up, I could not put down. And I did, you know, it made me chuckle because some of the plights you put these characters in are humorous at the same time. Yes. Just yeah. the, the first level, you know, again, I'm not going to give too much away, but the 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 way the the mode of transport they use firstly to time travel is not a DeLorean. <laughs> No, by no. any stretch. Well, it's um, no secret because it's on the cover. It's a Sinclair yeah, C5, Sinclair C5. Um, yeah. that their, their grandfather had um, played with when they were little. He he legitimately bought one. Uh, and then when, as they grew a little bit older, he turned it into a Christmas ride for them. Yeah. Um, and they stumble on it again as adults and realize he's made some modifications and they have no idea that it is actually a fully functioning uh, time machine. But that it was just a method to get them there. Yeah. There's no sonic screwdrivers. There's no sort of Star Trek speak. It's not really my thing. I don't understand it and I get lost by it. Yeah. So I wanted to plant them there and either bring them back or don't at the end. Yeah. Um, so that was that was where I was coming from, really. It's, it's even down to, like you mentioned there, um, the main character leaves her baby behind. You know, there's reference to her carelessness before this even happens. At the yes. That, you know, she, she, and then just to think, okay, she's left them, you know, 30 odd years in the future or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's just little touches like that. I mean, how the detail in this as well throughout um, with, you know, things they see, things they stumble upon. Um, how much research did you have to put in to, to, to flesh out this story and make it, almost like realistic, like we're there with you at that point. How, how long did that take? It, it was a labour of love, remember, yeah. because I actually have a box full of all the Smash Hits magazines <laughs> from 1983 to 1986 or something. Okay. But I knew them so well. I, I dug them out and looked at them, but I knew, I knew uh, what was going on at the time. But I was very careful to have... Um, it, it is a love letter to the 80s, so it was yeah. very much a case of... I wanted it to be cinematic. And I know a few people have read it and said, oh, this just reads like a film. But Absolutely, I don't, and I, I will say that. When you said it was, you started off as a, as a screenplay, I can totally get that. 
And that that could be that I know some people would see that as a negative because they want sort of extensive drama and and yeah. um, and description. But I wanted more sort of of the dialogue to drive the yeah. narrative forward. And occasionally, yes, I put a lot of information as to what was playing on the radio or what type of radio it was or where the cassette was and what was coming out of it. Um, but they're all time sensitive as to when the songs were released. So you'll hear, you know, bits about Alison Moyet or Paul Young or, yeah. or all these classic songs and also things we've forgotten about as well. Um, so there was a lot of research, but it was an absolute joy to do it because I just immersed myself in, in those happy, carefree days. And I think hopefully um, I didn't make it too personal I tried to spread it wide and a lot of the beautiful feedback I get from some amazingly delightful strangers mm. is that I've just ticked their boxes as well. And, and it's from an age of, of, of almost, because the protagonist, the main character is, is a lady called Tash and she's got a younger brother who's only 33. So they're, they're quite close, yeah. but you know, I'm getting remarks from people who are 36 upwards to about maybe 60 65 who enjoyed in their early 20s when band aid was formed so i hopefully i've i've included the um the uh the feel of of the year yeah. um from from all sides really not just from um yeah. a 36 year old lady I, I, I would totally agree with that. I was born in that year, so I don't have many any memories of 1984, 1985. Right. But, you know, the things I've grown up with take me back there a lot, which is why I always go back to, you know, that, that time is my, like, my happy space. Yeah. Most. Oh, that's um, nice. Band-Aid was, I, I believe, it was my sister's first LP as well. She was, was it? For, the, for that Christmas. I think she was like... 18. She got the 12-inch single, did she? I th yes, she did. And Wonderful. I have a feeling if I'm lucky, I may have that in my possession. Oh, sorry, Kate, if you're listening to this, and you didn't realize. Um, <laughs> as long as you gave your money to Ethiopia, that's the main thing. Some somebody did, somebody did <laughs> when they bought it. So you know that that has been a staple song, um, if, you know, in all of our Christmases since. You know, and it's, it's something that I there's a lot of personal memories that this evokes, even if you know it is just literally just the time in which it's set and and little references to songs or things that happened, you know, and I think obviously there is a lot of people, there are a lot of people um, who will have their own take on it, you know, when they're. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm mindful because I'm, I'm sort of in charge of, of um, well, all of it because it's independent. So yeah. the marketing as well, and it's trying to get that right because I know that for a lot of people, it was an especially difficult year as well with the minor strike i'm from sheffield okay. so i know exactly what happened there and yeah. um it was pretty brutal as well with unemployment I, i'm fully aware of what was happening in the landscape i only touch on those as being issues because this is escapism and i just want people to be happy yeah. i just want people to enjoy this and, and just immerse themselves in a bit of escapism even if it's not their their truth or their memory of that time mm. um just to escape to a simpler period but there are nods to things that were happening i mean i was 14 and terrified that we, the world was about to end because yeah. the russians were shouting at the the americans all the time and vice versa we were terrified about you know um the onslaught of uh, world war three it was really quite heightened back then um although you know we're still having conversations like that i was gonna say you know especially reading it in in 2022 there's a lot that you can still relate to mm. still going on you know yeah the world has has evolved a lot in certain respects but in others it's we're, we're having the same old conversations the same old conflicts the same worries yeah you know, so. and i think also um what it what it does point out is uh, and i'm guilty of it if scrolling on my phone and i can see my screen time at the end of every week um is saying that it, we haven't really gone that far forward at all. You know, yeah. we were able to um, 
enjoy ourselves and entertain ourselves and stimulate ourselves without reaching out to uh, a phone to do that. It was conversations, you know, and it was talking to people. I mean, I've got teenage daughters and I don't know that they've ever, ever had to phone their friend's home phone no. uh, or, or boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever, you know, that generation yeah. and actually speak to the parents first and ask <laughs> if someone's in and then be told 10 minutes. That's all you've got on the phone yeah. for them. Communication is just Insta and, and, and WhatsApp and Snapchat. Yeah. And it's, um, it's just sound bites. And I say, you're going to talk to them and they go, I have been, I have been talking to my mate all afternoon. You think you haven't, <laughs> you haven't at all. No. You've been doing sort of sound bites as to what you want them to think and what they it's want you to it, think. Yeah. It's almost like we um, have gone backwards. We're using technology to regress almost, aren't we? I, I sound like a dinosaur because I know that's the future, but it's just, it's just different. And I think we yeah. touch on that in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. You took, you, you mentioned then earlier on that a sequel, um, came about from the reception um that you got from the first book was was there ever one in your mind before that that, that you would that you would carry this story on or did you see it as just a one-off to begin with well i saw it as i said i i wanted to see it and i can picture it all on, on screen and so much of the feedback as well in the comments are, are saying that too and i i i was approached by um i, I don't really want to name him because it didn't yeah. it was a national broadcaster and producer it wasn't it wasn't channel five uh, it was uh, one that i went oh my god uh, and we talked about it but um we realized that the heart of of the book so much of it of the nostalgia um there are things that that come about whether it's the first or the second book things like blue peter top of the pops bbc yeah. tv center all those things that we remember um and this broadcaster clearly wasn't the bbc and they said we wouldn't be able to use any of those so come how do you feel should we change everything to something else and i just felt that the nostalgia that people love reading this would be lost um so i'm going to stick out for that if anyone wants to if anyone wants to make it <laughs> but the reason i'm saying that is um my my vision at the beginning was always uh, to create a little either miniseries or movie that, yes, we could come back to. Because who wants to write a one-off? When you spend so long creating this little world mm. of hopefully authentic characters, albeit slightly um, um, larger than life, or yeah. certainly the dilemmas are bizarre, but yeah, yeah. arguably could happen, um, I, I thought I've got to go back to them. And when I read um, a story about a TV show that was made, that Christmas and an actual news story concerning a million pounds at TV centre. I thought oh, that that's that's book two. So that's that's what I did for that. Very cool. Without giving too much away of obviously anyone who hasn't read the first one, can you give us a kind of feel of what where where the story may go then in the set in the second one? Well, if if you haven't read the first one, um, give it a go, and and you can probably get it for free. I think, and I think it's on offer all all, all of November on Amazon. Um, so I'd love you to read it. And I think you can read it for free or get your library to, to buy it. And so this isn't a hard sell, but I'd love you to escape yeah. a little bit and enjoy it. But don't feel you are committed to a, a three or four book series because it does end. The book the book ends. And I, I think it has a satisfactory ending. Um, and uh, you know the feedback was that that was a lovely story and, mm -hmm. and people have enjoyed it. So I don't want anyone to think, oh, God, I don't want to read all these books. No. I just want to read one. Yeah. Um, but I left it sufficiently uh, open that if we wanted to revisit it, we could and and so that it wasn't premeditated but i thought where are we now what can happen but i, I think the ending wasn't expected in the first book from most people that read it no, um no, but I, I did want the characters to to reconvene somehow and i had to come up with a way of, of that happening very cool very cool so so we um so move through book two you know, let's talk about book three as much as we can then without again 
giving too many details. This is the, this is the problem, isn't it? When you've got kind of a no a spoilers. Trilogy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, by the time you you start talking about the third book, you 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 can't. There isn't much left that you can say without giving too much away from the others. But um, I'll give you the floor for a few minutes, and however you can, um, sort of you know, tell us what we need to know about the third one. Well, the first book is called "Do They Know It's Christmas Yet." Um, which was a play on the title of the song and then yet meaning have they fixed their problem. And it was a bit of a, um, a weight around my neck, actually, because everyone was saying, oh, it's the Christmas book. So people were thinking, I can't read this in spring and summer. But actually, that's just the title of the book. It, it, a lot of the action is actually set in October 1984, which is when Bob Geldof uh, came up with the idea. So it's kind of an autumnal feel, the first one, but it does have Christmas at the top top and tail or beginning and end. Um, the second one is very much around the Christmas time, but it's more about running around TV centre and, and the Saturday Superstore studio. Um, but it's still got that sort of warm, cosy, wintry feel. And I thought my memories of this period also included glorious summers. So um, I wanted to create a dilemma in book three that took them from some of this warm, cosy, um, amber-lit streetlight uh, of the 80s to uh, the Mediterranean or sunnier climes um, in a, maybe the following summer. So um, there's a mixture of, of, uh, of, of seasonality about the, the third one, which is why it's called Wish You Were Here Yet. And it's, it's, it's remaining true to, you know, again, nostalgia you know, in the titles, really. I mean, Wish You Were Here, I remember growing up. I was, you know, I remember watching that or trying to avoid it. It <laughs> wasn't really my thing at the time, but, you know, it kind of just, just the titles, you've got a way of really giving us a flavour of what what to expect, you know, and p- appealing to those that that will want to go back in time without really giving much away, which I think is fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Uh, no problem at all. No problem. When, when, is, um, when is Wish You Were Here yet? It's you out then. It's out now. It's out now, and I am currently recording the Audible version as well because oh. I've, I've I've read the first and the second for Audible. Um, I didn't really want anyone else to do it because I I've kind of fallen in love with a lot of these that's, characters, that's rightly brilliant. or wrongly. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm recording that now. That's brilliant. Yeah. I um I've often thought this because I've had audiobooks done of a couple of my books. I've I'm not much of I don't have much faith in my voice and able to you know bring characters to life or anything like that and. You know, do you find that easier for you to do, you know, to 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 trust yourself with it because you know these characters better than I think so. Else? Yeah. I mean, the first time anyone hears themselves recorded, it's awful, isn't it? You think, oh God, <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah. Um and, and I oh I felt that way like everyone else. And probably people might be listening and thinking, God, he sounds awful. Mm. But um if you if you just gotta have faith in it, because I just feel that if you don't have faith in it, why would anyone else bother to read it? Right. You know, and it is so you sort of immerse yourself. And if it goes wrong or you don't like it, um, I know that you can sort of have um uh, pictures, can't you, to on Audible where you put your work forward and someone will read it for you and yeah. and you work out the business end of it at the other end of it. So it doesn't cost you anything, I don't think, for anyone to read it. They just um take a little cut. Um yeah. but, but it's not that lucrative, don't get me wrong. But I just wanted to I think I, I've previously um, had a, a script um, taken to read through, which is where the the actors uh, sit on stools. They don't build any sets or anything like that. They, they just get four or five actors, a copy of your script each, uh, and they read it in front of a load of sort of TV execs and people, influencers, oh, yeah. influencers that might make decisions or might want to take it further forward. Yeah. And me and my colleague, because we co-wrote, we haven't co-written the book, but we co-wrote um, 
this script. We were down in London in a theatre, so buzzing, so excited, and we'd polished this script so beautifully. And then we sat and we just felt sick when we watched these people. Oh, right. Bless them, hardworking, great actors, yeah. but just not getting or not delivering it how we did. And there's so much of comedy is in the delivery, I yeah. think. Um, how, how someone overplays or underplays a line or stresses a line. Yeah. So I thought, I, I, I don't want to risk someone not doing it as I, as I want it. And if people don't like how I've done it, then it's totally my responsibility. That's fair enough. What um, I don't think I, I really asked you this at the top when we were talking about what you you know what brought you here. But in terms of comedy, what what drew you to comedy? What was it as you were growing up? Was it that what you were drawn to? Was there anything in particular that you you know inspired you? I think I was always a joker from being little. I was always the one that wanted to make people laugh because it gave me a bit of a buzz. I wasn't really good at a great deal else. Right. Um, I quite liked drawing. And when I was very young, I was quite good at running, but I couldn't be bothered with all that training. So I, the easiest way to get uh, some appreciation from the family was uh, just doing impressions of people or just making them laugh. And then I found that, I mean, in the late 70s when I was a kid and early 80s, television, three channels, then ultimately four, um, there'd be like, two or three comedy slots a week there might be one or two on friday and saturday night and i could tell anyone where they were because it wasn't that i necessarily liked all the comedy but the rest of the stuff was just so bleak and depressing <laughs> that i wanted to watch telly but i didn't want to be brought down so yeah. it's kind of um i'm kind of escaping things i think i just escape reality because i think it's easy to laugh at stuff um and i've been told that I, you know in in the past i think an ex-girlfriend once said to me you find everything funny everything's not funny james and I, I thought well it is it really is because if you can't laugh at things then i just i think i'd worry about just utter despair yeah. and just spiraling into depression so i just try to find humor in everything and anything and um the more you do that the more you watch and and some things really tick your boxes like i, I used to love our feed as pet just beautiful oh, yeah authentic dialogue that was beautifully observed and written which is a similar thing that you say about the royal family i suppose yeah. uh, but i love the absurdity of father ted i love uh, uh, american comedies I, I, I came late to cheers and loved frazier i think well-written characters with authentic dilemmas but but believable dialogue yeah. is is beautiful and so i just try to create that um, and it's all about rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and not your first thought. Uh, get it as close as you can. And if people don't like it, I understand that too. The problem with writing comedy is it seems to be so Marmite. If you write yeah. any other genre like thrillers or, or romance, people will say, yeah, it was all right. Yeah. I've read better. Yeah, or it was amazing. But if you don't really make someone howl with comedy, they hate it and it's the worst book they ever read mm. you know um happily not everyone is saying that most people are saying it's they, they loved it and i'm getting some great ratings but it, it's a very tricky genre to get right and I, I mean case in point what i said at the top and that i'm i or i've kind of subconsciously shied away from comedy books because because i grew up with so you know loving so many comedy on screen you know films tv i was like i i didn't believe a book could make me laugh or, you know, could make me feel like I'm reading something funny because I don't know, I've never, never got that from books. And yours was one of the first ones where it changed my mind on that. That's very um, kind of you, Chris. Thank you. No, no worries. I, I, as a writer, I remember somebody asked me right at the beginning, just after I, I, I published my first book and they were like, what other genre out there would you like 
to do. So I was writing horror at the time and I thought I'm going to go the other end of the spectrum and I would like to write a children's book. Firstly, it's like night and day difference between what I was writing at the time. But I thought you've got the most challenging audience there. Um, kids will tell you, you know, with no, no, um, no hesitation when they like or hate. Something. Yeah, totally and, honest. And I think one of the because I knew that was going to be a challenge, but one of the genres I, I don't ever feel I, I would be any good in is comedy because I think you you really need to you've got to tap into something else there. Not everyone, like you just said, not everyone is going to like it. So you've got to have that kind of notion of you know knowing that you're not going to hit everyone, but you've got to have something in there that taps into something which people don't normally get from a page. Um, what what other genre out there, if there is one, would you like to try your hand at? apart from comedy uh i i don't really know i i found myself um i i don't i quite like drama but um it's, again it's still comedy drama that i enjoy on television <laughs> I, you know i like brassic i like uh Shit's creek i like okay yeah i like those sorts of things where there is always a, a, a nice sort of story arc and narrative through the whole series yeah. or season as we call them these yeah, days yeah. um and i think watching that I've, i really came so late to breaking bad and uh better call saul and stuff like that but yeah. I, and also um prior to that i'm trying to think what's the box set um oh now then it's going to come to me uh ozark yeah. um and and i think some of that's ref that i think some of that might be I've, I've absorbed some of that by osmosis and i, I there's more sort of um not darkness but more sort of thriller-esque or, mm. or that genre in the third book because i okay. wanted to get uh, a believable storyline going mm. uh, rather than purely absurd it is absurd but it, some of that as well so i think i could do that but i think i don't mean i could nail it i think i would enjoy trying <laughs> i mean uh but I, I think i'd still end up putting some sort of dark humor in there because mm. um because life is full of it yeah, and I think with with yeah you know, with what you've done with the first book that I've read, like I say, you you've changed my perception of comedy books really, and and that they can have this effect on you. If you've got that talent already, it's going to bleed through, isn't it? And you will find a way of making a situation feel, even if it's darkly funny. I go for dark humor myself. I quite enjoy, you know, um, yeah, things that shouldn't be funny almost. So I think, I think that's, that's the way we are, isn't it? As, yeah. as, as certainly as a country, as a nation, yeah. <laughs> if something's deeply horrific or horrible, um, I, I don't mean it in an unkind way. I mean, if you know, if, if accidents happen and and you know, hospital visits and funerals, we all find ourselves there. And you only need to catch the eye of someone that you know shouldn't be giggling or shouldn't say yeah. the wrong thing. And we do it really to 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 diffuse the angst. I think we do it to yeah. to make everyone feel better. We don't do it to be un mean or unkind. No. It's it's a coping mechanism, but it is everywhere all the time. It is brings me to one of my favourite quotes actually from Only Fools and Horses, which was my favourite show when I was growing up. Is um, is is during the episode I think where where uh, it's the first one with Al Uncle Albert in it, and it talk, and Delboy talks about it being his pressure valve, you know, humor. He he's 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 upbeat. He's always having a laugh because he doesn't really know how to cope with um, with normal kind of feelings wow. and emotions. And, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it probably is. It's because I'm inadequate. I haven't got enough dialogue <laughs> or vocabulary. 
and no one likes me. So I just make up a world where I can there be friends go. with everybody. Well, if it is for those reasons, which I doubt it is, it's, <laughs> it does some wonderful things. James. That's very kind of you. So, so uh, James, thank you so much for coming on. This is fantastic to hear more about the books. Everyone who's listening to this, um, anyone who follows my feeds, go out there and, and check out Do They Know It's Christmas Yet? Perfect time of the year to pick that one up. You know, like you say, even though it is is only a bit of the backdrop, um, I definitely think you know people can can get into it this time of year, and you know pick up the rest while they while you're there, and up to wish you were here yet, which uh, by the time this episode comes out is is out and available. Um, where can we pick up your books then, James? And where can people find you if they want to find out more about you? Uh, if they're still listening and want to find out about <laughs> me, thank you. Maybe you come around my house, we could be friends. But. Oh, um... okay. Uh, James Crooks, that's Crooks with an E, so it's C-R-O-O-K-E-S. JamesCrooks.com is uh, my new website. There's a mailing list on there, but also, uh, as I say, it's independently published. So you can find it on Amazon or on Apple. Is it the what's it called? Is it what's the Apple Store called? I don't Apple know. Store, that. that. Yeah, I think I uh, Apple Store. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, on Audible if you want to if you want me to read it into your ears. There you go. Audiobooks. I was late to the party with audiobooks, but I tell you what, they did you know not not being too cliche they did change my life really when i discovered them because i was on the road a lot at the time working yeah it was, it was where i could i could escape to a different world they're um, huge now aren't they they are yeah and i think this is where really podcasts have come from this is where i developed my uh, or discovered podcasts because um i found i was i was um comforted almost by hearing somebody else talk to me while i was doing other things yeah, i get that <laughs> i understand that yeah. <laughs> it's when they start actually talking to you you've missed well, the next left there chris yeah exactly yeah <laughs> that's the one <laughs> voice i don't tend to listen to when i'm in the car but there we go all right james thank you so much for coming on all the best with the new book and everything that lies ahead um you know hopefully catch up with you again at some point thanks um, very much chris thanks for having me on no problem at all anytime <laughs>